Hello, and welcome to the Steps Podcast with me, Boone Christensen, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. And if you missed the post called Depression, the Natural Process, then you should definitely listen to the part of the first episode on diagnoses or look or review it directly on the blog. But the main point of that post is that depression is in fact a natural function. It is adaptive for the body to depress or freeze under certain conditions, such as nutrient deficiency, cold and dark weather, overwhelming or inescapable stress, sleep deprivation, or if you're like many of us this season, a combination of all the above. Of course, in therapy, we mostly talk about stress and how to manage and process it, so we'll be discussing a few different unique stressors, a few profiles and symptoms of depression. The posts we'll be reviewing today are seasonal depression, caring for grief, procrastination theory, something that's not specific to depression but highly related, and then lastly, postpartum depression and other bodily symptoms. All right, let's get started. Seasonal depression. I talk a lot about how depression is a natural adaptation to certain kinds and quantities of stress, things that create a feeling of helplessness, usually that are overwhelming or inescapable. Our bodily functions depress, diverting energy from non-urgent things to basic functions. Many mammals in cold regions depress because efforts to gather food in cold and dark conditions would be less productive than shutting everything down and just waiting for the snow to melt. They're happy to eat up and wait it out. Humans are mammals and have the same tendency to depress during the dark months. I felt it in my bones these past few weeks, the sleepiness, the desire to cuddle up in a warm blanket and veg out on hallmarks, the urge to stock up on precious calories from delicious sources. I actually kind of enjoy the sensation. You might try googling the word hygge, spelled H-Y-G-G-E, which is a, a concept the Danish have for this kind of feeling. But there's a sinister side to depression that doesn't come from biology. The painful part of depression is shame, which can come in stronger doses in the holiday season from several sources. The first is shame about the depressive function itself. Modern society persecutes those who are slow and unproductive. Many of our bodies will feel the urge to depress, which may spike a culturally formed anxiety about being tired and unproductive. The conflict of these two feelings can be quite painful. The second, compounded by our body's desire to rest, is the weight of expectations this time of year. So many people act as if the holidays are supposed to go a certain way, as if they were getting graded on their gifts or parties or decorations or interactions with in-laws and extended family. That is so much pressure. Wouldn't it be nice if you could actually relax during the holidays? Christmas, which is supposed to be about charity, a force of unconditional love, becomes a market of gift debts, where people stress about whether they're showing enough love to enough people to be considered good enough, and they feel resentful if they don't get enough love in the form of stuff in exchange for their expressions of love in the form of stuff. Third, if you suffer from chronic loneliness, the shame, that shame can be exacerbated by the message that the holidays are all about togetherness making you feel that there is something wrong with you if you're alone. And of course, the shame of gaining weight, which comes from the hibernation instinct, but also from the stress eating of those delicious treats that people hopefully didn't give you because they'd feel guilty if they didn't. 
We address this not necessarily by losing weight, but by learning to stop shaming or valuing certain body types. Um, I have two posts particularly about that concept. <clears throat> so how can we stop the madness associated with um, holiday stress? Well, it starts with sitting the, with the belief that it is okay to be a mammal and okay to do the holidays however you actually want, not how others expect you to do them. Next is recognizing that this anxiety came from somewhere. It makes sense that we would freak out about the holidays because we learned to from actual experiences. And if this anxiety was instilled in us from specific people or, or cultures or environments, we need to recognize that you know, those people got it from somewhere as well. There's no one to blame, and compassion for ourselves and others is the only way out of this. Sitting with our emotions, perhaps that horrible holiday restlessness that you might have, will help us identify what is behind them and help us process those feelings to get to a place where we would feel comfortable moving through the holidays as healthily and as authentically as possible. And as far as our bodily instinct to depress, I suggest we lean into it as much as is reasonably possible. When we fight natural body processes, we get side effects. But if modern life demands our bodies act like it's spring or summertime, you can use your bright lights, turn up the heat, increase your exercise and social contact, and replace holiday hibernation foods with nutrient-rich options. Giving yourself warm weather stimuli can provide some temporary help. Loneliness requires its own discussion space, but I'll just say it can only be cured by loving contact. If there is really no one you feel safe reaching out to, then you might need to start with the mirror or your journal. You may give yourself enough validation to take the next step to talking to someone who can help you feel safe and known. This next post is called Caring for Grief and Recovering from Loss, and we'll be using the diagrams that you can find on the blog. Uh, it's just a post called Book Diagrams, and you'll find these two diagrams in there. I conceptualize all emotional pain in two categories. Shame is the pain of badness, feeling less than, broken, worthless, hopeless, stupid, unlovable, etc. This tends to be at the root of most mental illness. It is poisonous, infectious, and doesn't heal over time without direct treatment. I mention it here because it often accompanies grief. Grief is the sadness we feel at the loss of something or someone important to us. It is less likely to produce mental illness because it doesn't grow, and it is often easier to express than other emotions. But like shame and the superficial expressions of pain, fear or anger, it can cause problems if it is stuffed or invalidated. This post is about treating our grief. Like all emotions, grief needs to be acknowledged, validated, and expressed. Grief is bittersweet. It hurts. But to the same proportion that whatever we lost gave us hope, joy, love, or comfort. The intensity of grief shows how important the person or thing we lost was to us. Proper validation of grief recognizes the pain of the loss and why it is painful. The expression of grief includes feeling. The pain of grief is something real and tangible and needs to literally be expressed, i.e. squeezed out. It must come out. The most effective way to do this is with tears and other manifestations of sadness. Some people, especially men, shy away from sadness in an effort to convey strength or to keep others from feeling sad, but they do so at their own and others' expense. 
as the feeling still exists and will take the form of anger, anxiety, or somatic conditions, such as head, stomach, or joint aches, or fatigue, each of which are less effective forms of processing grief. Grief, if expressed as grief, does not create sadness in others. It creates sympathy, or triggers sadness that is already inside others. So please, allow yourself to grieve, both alone and with others, even children. And I have a footnote on that for the end of the post. Many fear that they will never recover from their loss, or that if they start crying, they will never stop. It is true that grief doesn't ever disappear completely, it gets integrated into our lives as it is acknowledged. It exists as a constant source of pain that diminishes in intensity as we incorporate other experiences and relationships into our lives, but it always exists and always needs processing. But I promise that if you allow yourself to cry, you will reach the bottom of the well and feel better for it. The following diagrams illustrate what you might expect in the course of processing your grief. The pie diagram shows how that piece of your life, once lost, will always be gone, depending on your religious beliefs. However, the rest of your life continues to expand. You have more life experiences, develop new relationships, and grow as a person. The piece is still missing, but there is more to you which reduces the relative pain of the missing piece. This highlights the importance of moving on, which doesn't mean forgetting what you lost. It means adding and strengthening what you have, including memories of what you lost, which you actually get to keep. The slopes diagram shows how the frequency and intensity of processing grief changes over time. When first experiencing the loss, the stress builds rapidly and needs to be processed intensely. If the tension is allowed to come out, then you won't have to reach a breaking point or develop problems from the suppressed grief. As you integrate more into your life, the relative stress of the loss diminishes and builds up at a slower rate, and you will need to process less often to keep the grief from causing issues. I.e., you cry hard today, then in three days, then next week, then in three weeks, then in two months, etc., but again, you can expect at least some grief to be building up for the rest of your life. The emotions that accompany grief must also be uniquely identified and processed. You must not only process the sadness of the loss, but also anger, fear, guilt, and shame if they exist. You may be surprised how the weight of grief decreases once these other emotions are processed effectively. So now we go over these accompanying emotions. Anger. Many people feel anger at themselves, others nearby, God, and in cases of losing a loved one, the person who died. Anger arises from hurt, and validating and expressing the anger will help identify how and why this loss hurts, which may be in different ways. Processing the anger changes it to grief. Fear. What happens now after this loss? What other losses happen as a result? What frightening things does the future hold? What weights or responsibilities do you now have? Identifying and expressing the fear will decrease the stressful charge of the fears and help you reach a state where you can make plans and solutions to face the oncoming challenges. If you find there are things you are anxious about that you shouldn't be, you may need to explore underlying reasons for those fears. Guilt. This is the feeling that you have done something wrong or hurtful, and it is remedied by actions to make amends. If you have done all you can to make amends but still feel guilty, 
there is likely shame at play. Shame. Fears about loss of purpose, loneliness, and abandonment can be traced back to one's to a sense of one's own significance and worth. How does this loss affect how you feel about yourself, about your identity? How do you perceive your own strength and your ability to recover? Loss can lead to explorations of issues long unaddressed. The guilt that remains after all attempts to make amends have occurred is likely shame, the feeling of being bad, which may have to be resolved with compassion and forgiveness for yourself. There's another post called Grief, Guilt, and Shame, which delves deeper into those three concepts. Final thoughts. The extent to which you grieve depends on how you feel, not what you think you should feel. Losses affect different people differently. A child losing a toy may grieve as heavily as an adult losing a parent, and a sibling to that adult may only require light grieving. All feelings need to be okay, and none should be invalidated because they seem too much or too little. This process should take as long as it needs to. However, it also may not be necessary to grieve constantly. It should be done deliberately as much as possible, not forced out due to pressure. And if it needs to be compartmentalized, that should also be as deliberate as possible. You might see the post about suppressing or compartmentalizing for more on that. There may be other feelings in the mix that may actually be causing more pain than the grief. Exploring these feelings may be the key to greater relief. And then here's the footnotes um, about expressing emotion to children or with children. Expressing emotions in front of children should be done mindfully with the intent to validate their feelings and to educate. Having identified the accompanying emotions as discussed will increase the chances of conveying the acceptability of sadness and the sweet side of grief and decrease the chance of inducing anxiety. For example, ah, I'm so sad because I miss grandpa so much. He was always so good to me. I miss how he made me feel loved. This kind of expression can help a child know expressing sadness is okay. But example number two, Ugh, I don't know what I'll do without him. My life feels so empty. This statement is heavily laced with fear and shame. It would likely induce the same in a child. And then another footnote about survivor's guilt. Many people experience survivor's guilt after a loss in which they feel that they didn't deserve to survive, don't deserve to recover from the loss, or would be disrespecting someone if they recovered. We can tell that this is actually a form of shame because there is nothing that can actually be done to make amends in this scenario since surviving is not a sin or an offense to others. Exploration of this feeling will find pain related to how you feel about yourself rather than something that you did wrong. All right, here is procrastination theory. You suffer from chronic procrastination. You know you shouldn't do it, but you do anyway and beat yourself up about it. What can be done? Let's try to explain why you continue to do something you don't believe in doing. Babies are not born to be procrastinators, but maybe we can peg, some, peg something that isn't in your DNA. Theory number one, your stress bucket is full. Please refer to the stress bucket diagram in the post, The Brain in the Bucket, or in the book diagrams post on the blog. As your stress bucket reaches capacity, you enter fight or flight, that anxious part of your brain. In this state, anything that adds more stress to your bucket feels intolerable, even trivial tasks, such as making that phone call, submitting that paper, washing the dishes, doing simple exercises, or maybe even your therapy homework. No, you only have space for things that are absolutely necessary for your survival right now. 
or other low-stress tasks. When your bucket is overflowing, you enter freeze, or the depressed brain, where you can't even do non-stressful things, only pleasing things, like eating yummy things, binge-watching dramatic things, or scrolling through hilarious things. Examine your bucket to see where you can make space so you don't have to procrastinate. Theory 2. You have suppressed emotions. Maybe you have feelings about this task that you're procrastinating that you can't recognize or you don't want to admit, a part of you that makes you not want to do it. Some examples. An adult daughter puts off getting a Mother's Day gift. She knows she should, but she just can't do it. Further exploration reveals hidden resentments toward her mother that impede her actions. Next, a college student procrastinates all of his assignments and eventually the applications for law school. He's a smart guy and it seems like the logical decision to fill out his applications, yet the thought is anxiety-inducing. We examine his feelings and find that he never really wanted to go to college and is only considering law school to please his dad. The procrastination factor is dissonance between being autonomous and the fear of disappointing a parent. Next, a teenager puts off getting her driver's license, claiming she is just too busy, and joking about a phobia of driving. She temporarily puts us off the scent of the real reason, of which she is most ashamed, the irrational fear of germs, and that and touching the inside of a student testing car, and the fear that no one will understand keeps her from talking about it and addressing it. Last, you have an unrecognized fear of failure that you cope with by using procrastination, because if you procrastinate the task, such as writing a paper, and end up doing poorly, you can blame it on the procrastination. You, you know, whipped it together at the last second. But if you do well, then you can also chalk it up to your genius. Procrastination eliminates the possibility of you appearing inherently incompetent, which would happen if you worked hard well in advance, but still did poorly. Theory number three, you're stuck in a double bind. You keep putting off whatever that thing is because it may involve a lose-lose scenario. You feel like your mom will criticize your chore no matter how hard you try. You'll get a C on this assignment no matter what you do. You can't possibly get your wife a non-disappointing gift for your anniversary, so you put off making that anxious decision. It makes sense that you would procrastinate a dose of certain pain. So, how do we overcome procrastination? Do some reflection. What's the real reason here? If it's your general stress level, see what coping skills can be used, changes implemented in your environment, or old baggage to be dealt with. If you're suppressing an emotion, see if you can healthily express that emotion to a validating person, or maybe even yourself in your journal. Or talk about it with the relevant person, such as telling your dad about the fear of disappointing him. If it's a lose-lose scenario, see if you can address some part of it to eliminate the fear of punishment, such as talking to your spouse or your mother about your fear to find resolution. Or you might set a boundary to get out of that situation. If it is actually an inescapable condemning situation, maybe you'll just try ripping off the band-aid and cope with the pain sooner rather than later, when the pain will probably be worse. All right, and the last one is postpartum depression and other bodily body-related symptoms. There is also a relevant diagram here in the book diagrams post. Childbearing and rearing are intensely painful and difficult feats, independent of other factors. Conditions 
like prenatal, meaning while pregnant, and postpartum depression and anxiety can intensely magnify the challenges. These conditions not only affect the mother, but her partner and any children still at home. And they are highly prevalent. An estimated 17% of women without any history of mental illness develop pregnancy-related mental illness. The women with pre-existing anxiety or depression have a strong chance of maintaining them or experiencing intensified symptoms during and after pregnancy. Many consider postpartum symptoms to be unique to bodies that have just given birth, that the transitional state out of pregnancy includes a lot of internal body stresses that can cause depression or anxiety. However, this view of postpartum is incomplete and can have detrimental effects as the attribution of mental illness to only biological conditions can actually prevent people from taking steps to treat it. Further education about this can help us know how to help those suffering from from debilitating pregnancy-related mental conditions. The factors found to most increase someone's risk of developing one of these conditions are not biological. They are general life stress, lack of social support, past or current trauma or abuse, and marital distress. We might consider the postpartum state to be a source of systemic stress, meaning that it contributes to one's overall likelihood to develop mental symptoms, but does not individually cause them. We can visualize this using the bucket model. A woman without previous history of mental illness might have a stress bucket like this. See diagram 9A. Pregnancy or postpartum might change the bucket to look like this which we see in diagram 9b. These states increase the amount of systemic stress to the point where the traumatic stress comes closer to the surface, and daily stressors are more likely to make a mom on edge or flooded. The pregnancy transitions are not the problem, but the total combination of stress with the transitions on top. Let's take a look at those factors I listed above. They happen to be some of the same strongest predictors of mental illness generally, not just for pregnant women, but there are some explanations as to how they play into pregnancy-related mental illness. So one, it turns out that generating a human is an intensely complicated and energy-consuming process. That energy gets diverted from other parts of your life, cutting your wage-earning hours, slowing your progress in school, keeping you from taking care of your physical health, and reducing bandwidth for your family's needs. Because these other components of your life will take a hit, your stress is going to increase. Two, lack of social support allows trauma to build up. Pregnancy is physically painful, and mothers need outlets to express that pain and receive validation. Feeling lonely in your pain exacerbates it and can drive depression. The lack of social support also leaves mothers alone in taking care of other children and responsibilities, while working with less capacity. The sheer buildup of tasks can flood a lonely mother. The quantity and degree of unprocessed trauma can help us predict how pregnancy will affect someone. Imagine a stress bucket filled with trauma, which allows few other stressors before a person gets flooded. Some specific traumas that can get triggered by pregnancy could be sex-related, abandonment, physical pain, severe sickness, productivity shame, and parent shame. I'll elaborate on these last two specific traumas. So women who feel shame for not having immaculate houses or for not doing things typically seen as productive, can have a really hard time with pregnancy, as some of the plates dropping are the not-immediately-necessary productivity things. 
This shame comes from the emotional trauma of getting the message that a woman's worth is based on her productivity or achievement, domestic or otherwise. Uh, we could see we could look at the post hoarding, obsessions, compulsions, and other perfectionisms in that anxiety episode for more about that. And then parent shaming. Parent shaming is a toxic plague in our society and involves anything that gives the message that parents are not good enough. We can assume all parents are doing the best with the knowledge and energy they have, and that has to be good enough. We can help parents increase their capacity, but not by telling them that they're bad if they aren't immediately acting according to brand new research or parenting fads. Parent shame hits moms hard when they don't have the energy to give their other kids the same kind of attention as they did before the pregnancy. Moms beat themselves up when they're too sick and tired to stand, thus letting Disney princesses raise the kids. Moms, it's okay. No judgment here. You do what you gotta do. Besides societal sources, moms can often track parenting shame to childhood experiences, where they got the message while watching their parents that one's worth is based on perfect parenting. These traumas can be processed. Next source is marital distress. Marital distress often increases during pregnancy, and the birth of the first child is a bottleneck for divorces in society generally. Just as the mom's energy is diverted from things like work, school, and family infrastructure, it is diverted from the relationship. The partner's needs come second to the baby's and mother's needs for biological reasons, which often shows up as maternal irritability with the partner. Partners who get offended by this evolutionary reality have a hard time during pregnancy and postpartum and can often aggress towards the mother, which only leads to aggressive cycles between partners. And of course, sex drive often wanes significantly during these periods for mothers, which tends to strain relationships. So what can be done about these issues? First, we need to know about them. Be open when discussing pre- and postpartum mental illness. Find people who will listen and validate. Talk to new and potential moms about risk factors. Let them know these conditions are treatable. Two, do lots of forecasting. Prepare when you can to strengthen your social network. Ask for help. Let people know when you predict you will need them. Look for online support groups. Process as much trauma as you can. Let the partner know that things might be rough and that it's not personal. If the partner has abandonment or neglect issues, those would be worth addressing in anticipation of the mom diverting her attention. If you're already in the throes of pregnancy-related mental illness, take a look at your stress bucket. What's in there? What can be changed? Who can help you change them? There is always something to be done. Last, consider medication. Psychotropic medication may not take away your sources of stress, but it might temporarily increase your capacity to make some changes. But beware that you don't rely on meds to fix your problems. If you don't make meaningful changes while you can, you may need to up your dosage, which will increase your side effects. Lastly, I would like to address the attribution of mental illness to body causes generally. A lot of people believe that puberty, menstrual cycles, and other body changes make people irritable, anxious, and depressed. I assert that these processes are not solely responsible for the emotional turbulence. When you listen to and validate the feelings of those going through them, you will find that their emotions can be tracked to many other things that can be addressed. Remember that mental illness is most influenced by non-biological factors in most cases. For example, the moodiest teenagers are those getting shamed, neglected, or misunderstood by their family, or who live in financially stressful situations, or who have been abused or bullied, or who have experienced divorce. 
the effects of puberty are negligible compared to those factors. And the women with the most emotionally jarring menstrual cycles also tend to be those with traumatic childhoods, with troubled relationships, and other significant life stressors. Rarely will you find a woman with a stable childhood and healthy marriage with an emotionally volatile period cycle. Though bodily functions contribute to overall stress, and may be the factor sending someone over the edge, the most important work in treating the illness is likely to be something besides fixing the bodily function. Okay, I hope today's podcast has been informative for you. Please share with anyone you think could use it, and feel free to reach out with questions, comments, and suggestions. Thank you so much.